Tonight we're going to take time and pray for uh, the young people of our church and for our community. And I put young people because initially I was going to talk about just praying for the kids, but I don't want to just pray for little kids. I want to pray for basically all of the young people, say, in the 20s and below. Uh, I thought about giving statistics about how many young people raised in church end up falling away, but there's no need. Life has given us all a firsthand experience of what the statistics describe. We've seen those statistics lived out in our church, our families, and among families of those we love. This reality can lead us to wonder what happened. I mean, why do young people raised in Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching churches uh, by families who love Jesus and who serve Jesus, why do those people wander away? Well, every young person makes their own choice about following Jesus. They have enemies who seek to lead them away from Jesus. The Bible gives us three primary enemies that that all people face, but I think are especially uh, impactful toward young people. One is the world. The world is the morally and spiritually corrupt system opposed to God and His reign. Think about this as the culture around us. The culture around us would include things like pop music, uh, or pop culture, music, movies, TV, books, magazine, and the news media. It would include just the general attitude of the world around us. So think for a second about pop culture, music, movies, TV, books, magazine, news media, and the general attitude of the world around us. Do these things encourage those who listen to them to follow Jesus? Well, obviously they do not. They are filled with things totally contrary to what the Bible says is right. Uh, It's like what Isaiah says that they call evil good and they call good evil and they encourage everyone to embrace that same mindset. So the world is set against our young people, but also the flesh, the sinful nature. Uh, It is something every human on earth has. The basic idea of the flesh or our sinful nature is it refers to our capacity and disposition to put self above everything, even Jesus. It is our internal wiring leading us to be resistant to the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives. The flesh dominates or enslaves us before we come to Jesus, and it resists Jesus' rule in our lives after we come to Him. Since the flesh is resistant to the rule of Jesus in our life, the flesh will push back against following Jesus even after Someone is saved. So you have the world saying you don't need to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is actually wrong. You should live however you want to live or live like this. And then there is something within that's going, you're right. I should do that because really this is hard. This isn't the easy way to live. I kind of want to do my own thing. And then there's the devil. Satan, of course, is a real being. He's not just evil in general. He's not just an evil influence. He's not the personification of evil. He is a real being of absolute evil who hates and opposes anything and everything that is from God or for God. This would include your kids, my kids, the youth of our church, and all the young people in our community, and really anything else that's good, right, and true. And these three enemies do everything they can. They work together to oppose, attack, and to destroy everyone, including young people. And they do work together. Right? Externally, the world seeks to arouse the flesh into action. The world offers temptations. The world offers what the flesh wants to do. Internally, the flesh says, absolutely, that is what I want to do. It resists the rule and the reign of Jesus in our life. 
And it pulls us to do the things that the world is offering. The world opposes following Jesus in such a way the flesh convinces us or tries to convince us what the world is promoting is better than what Jesus offers. The world will paint whatever picture is necessary to arouse the flesh into departing from following Jesus. And then Satan is essentially the one who controls the world. Right? He is the one who controls all of the culture and all of those sorts of things. This is what the Bible means when it calls Satan the God of this world. Right? Satan is not the God of the plains, the mountains, and the seas. Those things declare the glory of God and show His handiwork according to Psalm 19 and 1. What Satan is the God of is a culture promoting values and ideas contrary to God's Word. Satan is the God of a culture which demands we accept all religions as equal in the name of tolerance. Satan is the God of a culture where eagle eggs are sacred and must be protected at all costs while explaining a fetus is a clump of cells which can be destroyed at will. Satan is the God of a culture encouraging young people to rebel against and despise their parents. Satan is the God of a culture which celebrates people renouncing their faith in Jesus. Satan is the God of this world and the one largely responsible for the way culture seeks to draw young people, all people, but young people especially, away from Jesus. Now, since Satan is the God of this world and is doing much to draw people away from Jesus, we need to know how he works so he can oppose what he's trying to do in the lives of our young people and the young people we care about. Now, thankfully, God's word has given us much info about the way he works. Um, I think all the verses are basically in your handout. Ephesians 6.11 says, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, So that no advantage would be taken taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, the schemes of Satan are the deceitful methods and strategies he employs to deceive and destroy human beings. These strategies of the mind, uh, these are strategies of the mind Satan uses to mess with our minds, to, to mess with what people are doing. He wants to, as you see in 2 Corinthians 2, take advantage of us by his schemes. His goal for these schemes is to wreck as much havoc as he can. Jesus said Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy in John 10.10. Now, there are many ways in which Satan employs his schemes, but there are three primary categories most of his schemes fall into. The first one is deception. There's lots of passages talking about satanic deception. Three I've given in the handout. One, John 8.44, where Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. A liar and the father of lies. Revelation 12, 9, where we're told Satan deceives the whole world. And 2 Corinthians 11 and 3, where Paul was afraid Satan through trickery had led the Corinthians away from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, one of the great examples of Satan's deception is the Gibeonites from Joshua chapter 9. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, Joshua 9, it tells the story of They're conquering the land of Canaan according to God's will. God has given them some explicit instructions. They are not to make any sort of treaties with the people of the land at all. The Gibeonites are kind of 
far inland a little bit and they hear Israel's coming, they're conquering, they're killing, and they are afraid. And so the, the town elders come up with a plan. They pick some riders, they pick some people, they have them dressed in rotten and ratty looking clothes, they give them some moldy bread, they give them wine skins that are cracked and broken, and they tell them to ride their horses hard so they get to the camp of the Israelites and try to make a treaty with them. Well, when they get there to try to make a treaty with them, the Israelites don't know who they are. And so they say, we, we have to be careful because we can't make a treaty with anybody in the land and, and you might be from here. And so the Gibeonites say, no, 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 no. Look at our clothes. Look at how worn out these were. These were like new. I mean, just like fresh off the rack when we got up this bread, hot out of the oven. Look how moldy it is. These were brand new wineskins and look how cracked them. We have come... We are from a long way off. And the Bible explicitly tells us that as they that they made the treaty with them, but it explicitly tells us Joshua and the elders did not seek the Lord during this time. Right? They the Gibeonites didn't encourage them, last year God. The Gibeonites rather appealed to look at your eyes, look at the physical evidence, trust your eyes. Can't you see we're from a long way off? So a Gibeonite is anyone who encourages someone to do something contrary to God's will while appealing to natural senses and discouraging them from seeking God or His Word for guidance. Let me say that again. A Gibeonite is anyone who encourages someone, encourages a disciple of Jesus particularly, someone committed to Christ in any way, To do something contrary to God's will by appealing to natural senses while discouraging them from seeking God or His Word for guidance. Deception is a key aspect of Gibeonite influence. Who encourages young people to get drunk, to sleep around, to send naked selfies, to do drugs, to rebel against their parents? Gibeonites do. Who encourages young people to be open to other religions and all forms of non-Christ-centered spirituality? Gibeonites do. Who encourages and who talks people, tries to talk young people and, and all people out of their faith in Jesus? Because how can there only be one God in one right way? Gibeonites do. But while Gibeonites are the front that we see, Make no mistake, Satan and his deceptive schemes are behind the Gibeonites. Always. There's deception, but then there's temptation. Lots on temptation, but two particular passages. One, Matthew 4.3, Satan tried to tempt Jesus to sin. Now, to me, that's always a big one. right? If Satan the tempter will go to the Son of God, whom he knew to be the Son of God, and try to tempt him to sin, how much more will he and his minions come to our young people and try to tempt them to sin? Now, when Satan tries to tempt people to sin, there are five basic lies he uses. Right? One is, it's no big deal. This isn't a big thing. Right? I mean, it's not... I know you, you've been taught this is wrong and you shouldn't do this. But in the big scheme of things, this isn't nearly as big as what that person is doing. It's not that big of a deal. Another 
lie he'll use with it is no one will ever know. It's just you're all by yourself. You're out of town. You're far away. No one will will ever see or no one will ever know about this is between you and, and whoever's around you at the moment. But that nobody else will ever know. Another one is you deserve this. Now, I think this one is is strong, right? It's no big deal. That's very strong because we we we're prone to think that way anyway. No one will ever know. I mean, that one's pretty strong, but in the Internet age we live in, it's really hard to convince people of that anymore. I think it would be hard for me to believe anyone ever thinks they can do something and it not. No one would ever know. But you deserve this. This appeals to our self-centered nature. I mean, as as humans, we are naturally self-centered. We naturally think we do deserve more than what we currently have. So we we deserve this, whatever this is. And that's a big one. Because people are like, you're right. I do deserve that. And that hits in all the right spots. Another one is, you don't have a choice. You were born this way. There, there's nothing you can do. This is just who you are. This is your truth and you must live it. You, you can't fight against it. And he'll tell you that and... And again, we look at our culture and it is just filled with people who don't have a choice but to live in their sin. That's what they believe. That's what they've embraced. And another one that is really powerful in our day. Anyone telling you this, whatever this is, is wrong, is a hater. Right? Again, also super powerful today. Anyone who tells you something you do is wrong, they are they're haters. They they hate you. They despise you. They're trying to keep you from something good. And so Satan employs these lies, particularly against all people, but particularly against our young people. And it is very effective. First Thessalonians three five is also goes along with temptations. Paul was concerned the tempter had tempted them, the Thessalonians, from turning to turn from the faith. Now, I find the Thessalonian passage fascinating because the temptation the Thessalonians faced wasn't to be wicked. It wasn't to do immorality. The temptation was to give up on their faith and their devotion to Jesus. They'd been suffering some pretty intense persecution because of their faith and their devotion to Jesus. And in times like that, there, there are people who will come up and say, kind of like Job's wife, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. There are people, when life gets hard, who will come up and say, hey, you're really going to serve God and He's allowing all of this? What kind of God would allow these bad things to happen in your life? And, and they are tools of Satan Tempting us to turn from our faith. Not necessarily tempting us to commit adultery to become serial killers. But tempt people to give up on living for Jesus. And again, I think this one is particularly effective toward our young people. Many of whom have been raised to think everything in life ought to go their way all the time. 
And anytime something doesn't go their way, particularly if they've recently devoted their lives to Christ, if they're trying to live for Jesus, then the mindset they have been raised to believe is Jesus is failing me. He isn't doing for me what he ought to be doing. And in that moment of doubt, there is a tempter there sent by Satan to say, you're right. You're right. God is worthless in his job if he would allow this to happen to you. I think it would be safe to conclude anytime someone gives up on their faith and devotion to Jesus, they are giving in to Satan's temptation. But there is a there is a human face to that temptation almost always. There is a Gibeonite in that moment calling them, luring them, wooing them away from Jesus. So there's deception, temptation, and then the last one is separation. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 17 and 18. Paul had a great desire to go back to Thessalonica to meet with the disciples there. He not only wanted to go see them, but apparently tried to go see them, but he was unable. And this is to me fascinating. He was unable because Satan had hindered him from going. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch, but I can read a Greek dictionary and the word that's used that talked about had, that had that had prevented Paul from going, it, it's kind of a a word picture of you're trying to walk down the street and suddenly the, the bottom falls out and there's this great gulf and you can't get by. I mean, you are physically prevented from going forward. Now, I, again, I'm trying to wrap my mind around here's the Apostle Paul going back to people he led to Jesus, a church he planted, doing the will of God. And the devil, through whatever means, was able to almost physically restrain him from going. I mean, that's, I don't even know how to fully understand that. But that's what it says. He tried to go back, but the devil opposed him. Galatians 4.16. The Galatian disciples were being led away from Jesus by false teachers. Paul had written to them a letter telling them these teachers were false And even though they knew Paul and loved Paul, they turned on Paul. And so Paul asked them a question. Have I become your enemy because I am telling you the truth? And then in 2 Corinthians 7, 2 and 3, there's a similar situation to that in Corinth. Paul asked them to open their hearts to him because his heart is open to them. The picture is of them closing off their hearts to Paul because they didn't like what he was saying. In both Galatians and 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of Satan being behind the false teachers. Satan had caused separation from Paul and those other disciple of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. What Satan did then, Satan does now. Satan actively works to keep people from the fellowship of the saints. Satan wants to keep people from church. He is behind it, behind the the Gibeonites who come and say, stay home. He is behind all of those who try to keep us from gathering together with God's people in God's house. Not only does he want to keep people from church, but he wants to keep people from people who will tell them the truth. So if we work to have a Jesus influence on the world around us, And somebody we're trying to influence is somebody Satan is working to lead astray. 
Satan will work to separate them from us. So our influence doesn't ruin his plans to steal, kill, and destroy. I mean, have you ever had a time where you're, you're trying to be a Jesus influence on someone? Someone you know, someone you love, someone you have previously had a wonderful, wonderful relationship with. But now because you're being a Jesus influence, suddenly they treat you like you're the enemy. And you wonder as Paul did. Have I become your enemy just because I'm telling you the truth? Your heart is still open to them because you love them, but their hearts seem to be closing to you. Why? What's at work there? Satan is. Satan is at work trying to separate us. Separate us from people we're trying to influence for Jesus. I think this is often one of the reasons young people rebel and push against their parents particularly if their parents are devoted disciples of Jesus. Parents are trying to woo them back to Christ. And Satan fears our influence. And so he pushes back and says, No, your parents hate you. They're they're trying to keep you from living your truth. Your parents are opposed to you. And so Satan is at work when you see people being separated from the church. Satan is at work when you see People being separated from devoted disciples of Jesus. So with these three enemies in mind and the way Satan employs temptation, separation and deception. Let's take a few minutes right now and let's pray uh, for our young people. As we pray, ask God to help us to feel the weight of what we've just talked about, because that's weighty stuff. It's all in the Bible. You can search it out to make sure I'm not taking anything out of context. And then let's let that weight of that settle upon us. So let's take a minute or two and pray right quick. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your goodness. Lord, we're thankful that we have your word. Goodness. How blessed we are. Lord, we would never come to these understandings on our own. The stuff that that goes on in the spirit realm is beyond our natural minds. Lord, your word, though, your word helps us to see that there is an enemy. And he seeks our destruction and he seeks the destruction of of our young people, those in our church, those in our community, those in our families, those families we love. And Father, we are here tonight to pray against his schemes and his works. 
We're here to commit ourselves to being prayer warriors, to stand in the gap for the young people in our church, for the young people in our families, the young people in our community. Father, in order to to faithfully and consistently stand in the gap, we've got to feel the weight of what we've just talked about. We've got to feel the weight of the fact that the world, the flesh, the devil are real, really at work, really seeking to steal, kill and destroy the lives of really everyone we know. But we're focusing on the young people tonight. We've got to feel the weight of Satan's deception and the weight of the Gibeonites to realize not every friendship is a good friendship. Not every relationship is a right relationship. To feel the weight of temptation. Lord, even those of us who are older and we're not quite young people anymore, we know the appeal of the flesh. We know. We know how to rationalize and we know how to justify it. And, and we, we know. And Lord, that ought to make us humble. And that ought to make us passionate in our prayers, hoping, praying, pleading. That our young people would not make the mistakes we've made. We know the reality of separation. Lord, we've seen it so many times and in so many ways. The church was your idea. Jesus loves the church. Jesus bled for the church. The church is built upon the foundation of Christ. It is through His church that the gates of hell will not prevail. And if your word says all of that about the importance of your church, then what's turning people away? Certainly not your Holy Spirit leading and guiding people in their lives. Certainly not your word as it's studied and applied and lived out. Certainly not Jesus So it must be the enemy. What is it that makes straying people angry when we try to talk to them about the truth and about the need to live for Jesus? Again, certainly it's not your word studied and lived out. Certainly it's not your Holy Spirit at work in their hearts. Certainly it's not Jesus. It's the enemy. So let that weight and the weight of all of those things rest upon us. Let it be heavy upon our hearts, heavy upon our minds. And and rather than giving in to despair that we might be tempted to do in times like that, that we would cry out to you. For we can't fight against the enemy in all the ways we need to, but you can. So we ask you to move us to pray. Hear our prayers. Save and sanctify our young people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So what can we do to prevent this, what we've talked about, Satan's schemes from happening to the young people in our families, in our church? I think there's a few things that we can do on a personal level. One is to check our own lives. Right, Psalm 139, 33, and, and 34 tells us to, to examine ourselves, to pray for God to, to examine us, to search us. And try us. And this is important because we cannot effectively fight for the souls of others when our souls are not right with Jesus. 
Or as one popular author says, you cannot oppose the devil's plans in prayer if you align yourself with him in your personal life. To ensure our lives and souls are right, we must pray like the psalmist for God to search us, to test us, to see if there is anything in our lives hindering our relationship with Jesus and our ability to be a Jesus influence on those around us. And as the Holy Spirit reveals things, to lay those things aside no matter what they are. Second, we must be committed to God's Word. Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32, that if we continue in His Word, we will be His disciples indeed, and the truth will set us free. 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul said he preached Jesus to those who were blinded by Satan. The truth of God's Word is necessary to counter all of Satan's schemes. Satan's schemes are lies. And so what's needed in response is the truth, the absolute truth of God's Word. Since this is the case, we, we as disciples of Jesus must have a desperate commitment to God's Word. And this means we must never waver at giving a Bible answer to whatever issue we face. If someone asks us, is this a sin? If God's Word says yes, then our answer must be yes. That's what the Bible says. If someone says, are you saying I'll go to hell if? If God's Word says yes, then we must say yes. That's what the Bible says. Right? We we do no one no favors by waffling or watering down God's Word in those moments. Now, culture tells us these are unloving answers. But as often is the case, culture is wrong. There is nothing loving about comforting a loved one as they walk a path to sin that leads to destruction and eventual eternal damnation. A parent who let their child drink poison because they didn't want to argue with him, or they didn't want to hurt their feelings, or they didn't want to scare them, or they didn't want to hinder their relationship with them, and just wanted them to be happy, is not a good parent. Such a parent, in fact, in the courts, in the American court system, would be liable. They would be guilty of neglect at the very least. Well, neither are we good disciples of Jesus if we waffle on what God's Word says about sin because we don't want to argue. We don't want to hurt someone's feelings. We don't want to scare them. We don't want to hinder their relationship, our relationship with them. Or we just want them to be happy. It is neglect. It is wickedness. It is sin. It is cowardice. And we must, must repent of that if we've done it. And we must never do that again. We should fast occasionally. Fasting is going without something. Usually food for spiritual purposes. However, fasting is more than just denying ourselves the things we want and need. It's primarily a time where we focus more on God and less on us. When we fast, we seek to center our attention on God so we can put Him first in every area of our lives. 
We're saying we need God and we desire God more than we desire our physical food. We do this especially when we're going to fight spiritual battles. We do this because we desire God's help more than we desire food. Some spiritual battles can only be won through fasting. Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Luke 4, 1 through 13 are parallel passages. Jesus is led by the Spirit where He would face Satan's temptations. But prior to facing Satan's temptations, Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. When Satan came, Jesus was ready and Jesus won. This despite being hungry. There are certain spiritual fasts will, or certain spiritual battles we'll never win without fasting. There are certain breakthroughs we'll never experience without fasting. We must fast. And then we must pray. The only way I know to fight spiritual, spiritual battles is with the Word, with fasting, and with prayer. Now often, we don't know how we ought to pray. As we're trying to intercede for someone like this. And what happens if we're not careful is we fall into one of two categories. We'll, we'll maybe Google. How do I pray for someone falling into sin or something along those lines? And we'll find something online that somebody says to do. And we'll pick it up and we'll begin to pray that way. I, years ago there was a Southern Gospel singer who fell into grievous sin. Uh, in an effort to find deliverance from his sin, he went to a church that was going to do warfare praying for him. And they led him up on the stage and they had him lay down in the crucifix position. And then they poured holy water on him while they prayed against Satan's schemes for his life. Sounds interesting, but it's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us to do those sorts of things. The Bible, in fact, holy water doesn't even, isn't ever even used in the Bible. It was just something someone made up to do. Another way we'll do it is to maybe just say, Lord, help. And that's certainly better than nothing. But I don't know about you, I don't like praying that way. I want to pray as specifically and as biblically and, and to me, in many ways, as aggressively as I can. So here are some some biblical, some Bible-based prayers to pray for the young people in our families, our church, and our community. Right? Pray they will know and follow Jesus. Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now built, being built up in Him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So, from a passage like that, we would pray they want, they receive Jesus. Right? We want them to be saved. They would come to Christ. Then we pray they would follow Jesus. They wouldn't just make a profession of faith and go on about their lives. They would live for Him. They would walk in Him, as it says. They would be rooted in Jesus. Right? So... They would know when, when times of temptation, when difficulty came, they would know that Jesus was real. Jesus was what was holding them. And they would not fall away when they get away from maybe our influence. Pray they would be built up in Jesus. 
That He would be the foundation and the builder of their lives. Pray they would be established in the faith. They would know what they believe and why. That if someone were to ask them, why do you think Jesus is the only way they could open the Bible, point to a verse and say, because right here says so. Pray they would overflow with faith. Have an unshakable faith in the greatness and the goodness of Jesus. And then they would overflow with gratitude for all Jesus has done. They would be able to look at their lives and recognize every good thing they have comes from Jesus. And they would be thankful. They would recognize all Jesus has done for them, done in them, done through them. And they would be grateful for His work in their lives. Pray they would not be conformed to this world. Romans 12 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now the idea of be conformed is an interesting word picture. It's like be pushed into a mold, like a jello mold. And you put it in there, and when the jello solidifies, you have it looking like a certain something. And so the world is trying to, to push our young people into a mold so that they will conform to it and they will fit in it. The world wants them to, to think a certain way. That's why they're constantly being told how to think and what to believe by everything around them. The world wants them to see other people in a particular way. That's why it, it demonizes one group and, and praises another group. The world wants them to have certain morals. That's why it encourages and celebrates and rejoices in certain things and minimizes and belittles other things. The world wants them to have certain priorities. That's why it makes everything seem urgent. The world wants them to take certain actions. That's why there's always invitations to come and do. The, girl, the world wants them to react in certain ways. That's why, again, some people's reactions, which no matter how they are, how awful they are, are celebrated. And other people's reactions are minimized or considered as evil. The world wants them to value certain things. These things are important. These things are worthy. These things are wonderful. These things, though, are worthless. These things are stupid. These things are not things you should care about. And there is not one part of what the world wants them to be, to think, to do, to value, to prioritize, is anything like Jesus at all. And so we don't want them to be molded by the world. But we also pray not only that they would not be conformed to this world, but they would continually progress in sanctification. Second Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from the glory, from glory to glory, just as from the Spirit, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, in a lot of ways, this is the opposite of what the other one was. 
right? Romans 12, 2 is what we don't want them to, the mold we don't want them to fall into. This is what we do want them to fall into. We want them to be molded by Jesus through the Word and through the power of the Spirit. But we, we want the time that they spend in God's Word, whether they're studying it or hearing it or being taught it, the Spirit to work through that and make them ever more like Jesus. And so pray they would progress continually in sanctification. Pray they would passionately serve Jesus. Romans 12.11 says, Not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Serving Jesus is one of the main paths to becoming like Jesus. But serving Jesus is also one of the main paths to someone making the faith their own. One of the the main ways we ensure our young people embrace Jesus and live for Jesus is to train them to become not consumers, but contributors with the church and to not only just set and receive, but to stand up and give to others. The sooner we can train our young people to serve Jesus, the more we can release them to go and do for Jesus, the sooner they're going to embrace the faith as their own and they will more likely live for Jesus all their days. Pray they will find and use their spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 6-8, 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. Every young person who gets saved is given a spiritual gift. Just as surely as an adult is given a spiritual gift. We want our young people to find and use their spiritual gifts. Purpose is one of the the main drives of, of all people. And if a young person can seek the Lord and find out the gift He has given them to serve Him and advance His kingdom, then they are going to live for that purpose far more likely. I regularly pray For God to call young men and women from this church to be sent out as international missionaries, as church planters, as pastors and youth pastors and to other ministry related vocations. But not just that. Those aren't the only spiritual gifts there are. I pray that we would all find what God has gifted and equipped us to do and we would rise up and begin to do it. Pray they would be courageous. Joshua 1, 6-9. They don't think about courageous here being like courageous to go skydiving. Think of courageous as courageous to do God's will no matter what. How many of you know that if a young person sets their heart and mind to seek Jesus, they will face opposition almost immediately? Their friends, their culture... All push back against it. And the easy thing for them to do will be give in to the pressure being placed upon them. And so pray they would be courageous to do God's will no matter the cost. Pray they would be courageous to believe God's word no matter what anyone says. Pray they would be courageous to obey God's Word no matter how people respond. Pray they would be courageous to follow Jesus though none go with them. Pray they would be courageous. Pray they would love God's Word. 
How I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Statistically, people who read the Bible for themselves regularly are more faithful to Jesus than people who don't. God's Word is a precious treasure. And, and I know, I know we know that. We wouldn't be out on a Wednesday night if we didn't believe that. But there are literally places in this world where having a physical copy of this will get you killed. There are plenty of places where they don't even have it in their language and they long for it. They desire their videos of Bibles coming to tribes for the first time that they're going to be able to hold God's word in their hands. And they are jumping and singing and dancing in praise to God for the first time. They're going to get to hold God's word in their hands. Let's pray our young people will treasure God's word in that way. Pray they would love God's people. Psalm 122 and 1 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now, I use that speaking about church because it says I was glad. We can force our young people while we have some measure of power and influence over them to come to church. But as soon as they get out from under our pressure and our influence, they will stop if it's not their own. And, and, and I did. I went to church growing up. I've said before, growing up, my parents gave us two choices. We'd go to church, we'd get a whip, and then we'd go to church. But we were going to church. And then I joined the army, and I went off where my parents weren't, and I didn't go to church. And so we want to pray that our, our young people will love God's people. That they will be glad for opportunities to go to the house of God. Now, the church. Church is always a part of God's plan for someone's life. Anyone who is a born again disciple of Jesus is intended to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. So. I think in, in some ways we want to not only pray they would love God's people, we we need to model that. We need to model that they can see we were glad when they said it's time to go to the house of the Lord. That we love God's people, that we love God's church, because we all know there is more power in an example than a lecture. To tell our young people, love the church, go to church, be a part of the church. And then as you load up, say, man, I don't want to go to church tonight. I hate that we have to go. One of those is more important to them than the other is. One of them has a greater influence on them than the other does. So be an example of loving God's people and pray they would take that example. Pray they would be pure. Peter, 1 Peter 1, 14-16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. 
But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Purity is not just for adults. Purity is for all people. Anyone who is born again is meant to be holy. As God is holy. Purity isn't just in sexual or just sexual in nature either. Purity covers every area of life. Our thinking should be holy. Our actions should be holy. Our reactions should be holy. We should have holy values and holy priorities. And our devotion to Jesus should be pure and holy. Pray. They would be holy. They would be pure in all areas of life. Pray they would be people of prayer. Psalm 116, 1 and 2 says, I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my pleas. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call upon Him as long as I live. I love this passage for prayer because it's relational in nature. I love God because He's heard my prayers. Because God has heard my prayers, I'll just keep on praying. Pray our young people will catch that relational nature of prayer and they will love the Lord their God and they will know He hears their prayers and so they will just keep on praying. Pray they would be people of faith. Now, the, now to Him who is able to do far more exceedingly abundant... Abund, sorry. Ephesians 3.20 Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. I want the young people of our church to believe the God of the Bible is every bit as big and awesome and powerful as God's Word says He is. Now, with this, we do want them to we pray for that. But again, this comes to our example is going to be a big part of that as well. We can quote Ephesians 3.20 to them, but then if we act like and we tell them and we speak like God isn't big and powerful and can't do big things, our example is going to overwhelm our words. So we must live. Let them see in us we serve a big God. Pray they would maintain right relationships. Proverbs 13.20 says, One who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. 2 Corinthians 6.14-15 and says, Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and lawlessness share together? Or what does light have in common with darkness? Or what harmony does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? Not every relationship is a good one. Not every friend is worth having. We are who we are most around. We are like who we are most around. Typically, in relationships, we influence and are influenced. And we do not want our young people to be influenced by those who are ungodly. At the same time, their closest relationships, such as their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their future spouses, are significant. God's Word is very clear. A disciple of Jesus is not meant to marry someone who is not a disciple of Jesus. So we should pray they would have right relationships. Part of that is praying. They would not even date an unbeliever if they're a believer. That way they would not have the opportunity to be entangled in love before 
having Talpreneur be entangled by, in love at all, and it wouldn't have to have a hard conversation about a believer marrying an unbeliever. Because there is, there is never a time in which a disciple of Jesus marrying an unbeliever is a righteous thing. It's just not. Not according to God's Word. And then pray they would be Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. Ephesians 5.18, Galatians 5.16 and 17, then verses 22 through 25. Just as spiritual gifts are for all believers regardless of age, so the Holy Spirit is for all believers regardless of age. Our young people who come to Jesus and get saved, they get an equal portion of the Holy Spirit just like we do. They don't get a Holy Spirit junior. And so we should want our young people to be comfortable with the Holy Spirit's leading and filling and empowering of their lives. We should want our young people to be aware of the fact there is a Holy Spirit who fills them, leads them, and empowers them in their lives. Now all of this can seem overwhelming and possibly fear-inducing. But Jesus is Lord over all and has conquered all. Colossians says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and He made a public display of them having triumphed over them. While the world, the flesh, and the devil are real, they're active, they're influential in our world. As disciples of Jesus, we are not subject to them, but they are subject to the One who has redeemed us. And we can be more than conquerors through Him. The Christ who conquered evil spiritual powers on the cross is the Christ who can conquer the evil spiritual powers that are trying to lead our young people astray. So we, we pray with the weight, no doubt. I think we even probably pray desperately, no doubt. But we don't pray as defeated people hoping for something. We pray as those who are connected to the ultimate victor who will win all things in the end. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for your grace and your goodness for all you've given and done. We thank you for your love and your kindness. Help us, O oh God, to pray for our young people in the ways we've talked about tonight. Let us pray that they would be established. Let us pray they would be built up. Let us pray and let us see it happen. Father, make our church a place where people are saved at, at young ages just as soon as they're able to understand the gospel message. Let Jesus save them. Let the Spirit fill them. Let the Word and the Spirit sanctify them and let them live for Jesus all of their days. Lord, we rejoice that if we go into deep, dark, desperate sin that we can be redeemed up out of that. Hallelujah the redeeming power of Christ. But Lord, the Jesus that lifts people out of the mire of sin is the Jesus that can keep people from ever falling into the mire of sin. And we pray that would be the testimony of our church and the young people in our church. Jesus would save them young. They would live for Him always. And they would die having given their all for Christ. They had run the race they had finished the course, and they had kept the faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.